0: Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the Project Mohicanatuck podcast. In this episode, Nathaniel Williams interviews John Bloom, Vice President Organizational Culture at RSF Social Finance, about his latest book, Inhabiting Interdependence. The interview took place in November 2017. You speak about a number of instances, uh, like, for instance, there's this place where you describe how if you slow down an economic transaction, so I'm going and I'm buying a product, you know, um, and I just, I take a minute and I'm standing there, I usually just get it, you know, I know what I need, I'm about to buy it, but I stop and I say, where did this come from? Who produced it? What was the waste? Is what I'm paying um, covering uh, the recycling, um, the uh, waste management that's connected to the production, um, good, uh, just social pay for the producers? Sure. If not, who is paying for it? Mm-hmm. Is it not being paid for? And you suggest, you know, as you. Let all that come to consciousness through slowing down. It can change how you will act, I, I, because yeah, I think so. <laughs> and you have a lot of faith in that, mm-hmm. also in human nature to faced with those realities to sure. act more sustainably.
1: If uh, if one actually feels that one is the author of one's own story, then you can also author the slowing down. But if you don't feel that empowerment, I think it's probably not the right word, if you don't feel even that permission, then um, the story is actually as it's been fed to you. right? Which is money's easy, quick, use your credit card, done, get what you want as fast as you want it. uh, All because there is, in a sense, a transactional motivation behind it and the people don't matter what matters is the number of transactions and the rate at which those transactions happen
0: (laughs) yeah fascinating you you point out as well that if it moves at a speed that makes it impossible for you to see where you stand in the flow of human intentions that are connected to money again you often refer to the fact that with every dollar there's spirit uh attach their intentions and how you spend it you're a steward in the stream yeah. and uh whether you're spending giving paying back a loan giving a loan you're involved in this less tangible but totally real ethical human relationship with people all over the world yeah. and um that If it goes too fast, what happens is that money becomes a commodity and has a value in itself, a kind of a virtual value, you call it, because it's not connected to life on Earth and society anymore. Yeah. Yeah, fascinating. I mean, in relationship to this, it seems... I mean, the way that you depict the natural reaction to... Um slowing down and thinking about your relationship to land and neighbor um is that there's actually a natural response of altruism and solidarity in right. economic activity if it is slow enough that you can think with it or it's not too fast for you to think along right. with the transactions right now so, how so there's is that... another but there's another yeah. piece in there too because in relation
1: to others and and your neighbors and all the rest is it. Um, when you slow things down, right, so that's a time function, right? Mm-hmm. What happens is you actually create more spaciousness. So suddenly where if you're in a real hurry, the time's going, that spaciousness is not there. If you slow down the spaciousness that there is so suddenly the person next to you becomes visible. That person's not visible if if it's all about the time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? So you have to remember that you're actually
0: creating a space for other things to happen.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now you this is interesting because I mean I think typically when people would think about economics they would think about what they have possibly learned when they went to college um in the United States that you know the our economic science is largely colored by the model of self-in- self-interested rational right behavior and um, really ca- rooting on and calculating with egotism as really the kind of element we can count on to regulate our common life on earth. You seem to suggest this is, you call it a number of times in the book, the myth of self interest. Yeah. yeah. And obviously, as I was saying before, when you talk about these. Associative economics, the different processes where you slow down, you talk in networks of producers and distributors and consumers about needs and set prices accordingly. You seem to think altruism is a natural response. Um,
1: I think, I don't know that it's a natural response as much as is the potentials there to be cultivated, when you can set context enough for that to be visible, because primarily that's been invisible. We don't grow up in networks where, I mean, maybe you're lucky and you're in a barter community. or I don't know, but it's very rare. But in fact, um, uh, I mean, I think about the experience, I'll just use RSF in our pricing meetings, and, you know, i facilitated now 30, at least 30 of the 34 of those. There's a moment in every one of those meetings where people suddenly wake up to the fact that, um, okay, so I'm putting my money in RSF and I earn some interest for that. RSF is putting that money out to the social entrepreneurs and they're paying for the use of the money, interest, and so the whole question of interest is that that's a whole other conversation. But they're paying some interest and RSF has some needs that get to be visible as well. And so if I'm an investor and say I've got $25,000 um, and I want more interest. So if I get at say half percent more, even 1% more interest uh, on an annual basis, that's maybe $200, right? Is that going to make a huge difference in my life? So aggregated, if the average loan just say is a million dollars and you add 1% interest, the borrower on a million dollars could be paying, you know, $200,000 more, or $20,000 more, or whatever that, I can't quite remember what the number would be, 20000 more. And that puts them in a very difficult situation. That's a significant number, and it affects them in a way that a person who says, do I really need that $200? No. And suddenly here's from the person who's using it, money saying, If saying, if I... If I'm the investor and I want that much more, that's putting my colleague over here in a position of having to pay significantly more because it's actually all of us collectively that are making that loan possible, right? And the dots get connected suddenly, right? It's saying, oh, my money's making that possible, and if I, whatever I decide is actually put in you in a position to have to make decisions now that's visible to me because maybe the borrower said, well, that means there's two people I can't hire. Or I can't get that truck. I need to get the things to market or whatever that sum of money would actually mean to them. Suddenly the investor said, well, no, I don't want to put you in that position, which is not like I don't need the money. It's like, I don't want to do that to you, right? I don't want my need to drive what your decision making is. That's a huge moment. That is a hugely transformative moment. Mm. And, and you can feel the room when that aha moment goes off. Something shifts for people. And the, people don't leave the same people that they were when they came in. And that happens at almost every meeting. At some point or another. It's a different time and, you know, different places. But
0: So you could, I mean, when you look at one of the obvious movements you point to in your book uh, that's, I think one of the fastest-growing sectors of the global economy right now is the fair trade share of the market. Sure. And it sounds very analogous. So the only thing about fair trade is, and I, I
1: don't know if I was that specific in the book, so of course there's the, the free market economy, right? Which... Um, and I, I tend to refer to fair trade as the fair market, right, as opposed to free market. Because yeah. it's, it's, it's fairer, but it's still market-driven. Yeah. So the farmer, if it's a bad season and doesn't have coffee beans, no matter what fair trade, so they're not going to earn anything. So it's still market-driven. And the, the responsibility and the risk is still borne by only one party.
0: brings me to another interesting story that you tell where you talk about a farm that you were um, involved with as a CSA member, I believe, uh, in the West Coast it must have been. Life Power. And you refer to uh, the process where you would, you know, establish, so to say, how, how to support the farmer. And... And then you say at one point in the in the little reflection, you say, I was in an economy where there were no market forces present. Right. Now, could you just explain a little bit the process and what do you mean when you say there were no market forces present? Hmm. So that's the third part, right? Because you have free market, right?
1: Fair market, and then market free.
0: <laughs> just right. to kind of keep the, yeah,
1: you know, the thread. Um So the process is um, sitting with the farmer and saying to the farmer, I mean, a farmer, first of all, let's make an assumption. The farmer doesn't grow food just for the sake of growing food. They grow food so that it can be eaten, nourishing. I mean, they're certainly stewarding the soil and and all the rest, but you still, you could do lots of different things, but they're growing food, so there's community intent in there, right, for lack of a better way. If they not want to take it to the farmer's market, then who's going to eat it? So the farmer decides, well, we think we can grow food for say a hundred families. got to find those hundred families and form a relationship and then you sit with the farmer and develop a budget for the year and that budget includes everything from the cost of seeds, capital improvements to um, maintenance to cost of you know, production. Uh, packaging, you know, distribution, all of that. Um, I'm trying to think of insurance, retirement funds, everything that would be in the package for the year. That be- that gets to be the sum total of the budget, and then that gets divided by one hundred, because there are a hundred families. Those families then provide that total budget, and for that they receive, say, seven months in California. It's seven and a half months of food. Um, that is actually the cost of the farmer for the year, not for the time that they're just growing the food, right? So, and it's also a community of shared risk, which means you're paying, the, paying into the CSA, which is providing the farmer their livelihood, regardless of whether there's food or not. So the whole community shares the risk of that. So there's no market forces in there. So the farmer's are not producing a commodity, right? The food's basically a byproduct of the activity Um, they're not risking going out of business because it was a bad season, and the community says, wow, we're supporting people, we're not buying food. So there's a destiny question that's in there. Can I recognize uh, it's my destiny to have enough money and not to be able to grow food, where somebody actually needs the money, that I am producing a surplus, and has the destiny to grow food? That's community. That is a true economy.
0: <laughs> yeah, this is, uh, yes. So with the, um, question of, you bring up in relationship to the farmer now, I said, we are not paying for food. Right. We are supporting a person. And there are a number of... we're not of, paying for labor either. There's no direct not, correlation right. that you can draw between the... So this is the the interesting other, another kind of retelling a new story mm-hmm. that you... Um, it's not new. I mean, I know you're inspired by a number of theorists that you mention um, in the book. But the idea that... Comp- to rethink compensation. So, to rethink what it means to give everyone money and how much to give them. Mm-hmm. And under what conditions to give it to them. Um, and how to think about that altogether. Um, so, where do you think... <laughs> uh, the real crux of that question around compensation is
1: well I mean I can I mean I used the example in the book that it was so powerful for me I mean it all started by that little ad that I saw in the New York Times said earn what you're worth right and um, I think I cited it in the piece and I got so bothered by that I'm thinking yeah that's the story that everybody buys right? I'm going to invest in my education so I can earn what I'm worth, which makes, if you unpack the assumptions that are in there, first of all, what you make is a measure of what you're worth. I mean, that's the biggest, it's like a big, loud assumption. I don't know how you determine what somebody's worth. Really, what's a human being worth? If you take that line of logic to its full conclusion, um, you have to accept the notion of slavery, because it's a human being as a commodity, right? And in the world of commodities, the producer wants the highest possible value and the consumer doesn't want to pay anything for it. They want more for less, right? So the more and the more less formula ends up with slavery. You get all the labor and no cost. Brilliant. Well, not really, but. Um, so if you really think labor, think of labor as a commodity, then you have a problem, and you get to what we have going on in the world. Where it might be wage slavery, it might be, I mean, there's a whole manifestation of that as a challenge in our, in world culture, I would say, not just in our own, but certainly in our own culture. So, how do we separate this notion of what we bring as human beings and our capacities to work, to bring our gifts into the world, in service to the world, and make sure that the material needs, that one needs in order to be able to do that, are met. So there's a disconnect there. But not, it's an intentional disconnection between what you receive by way of support to meet your material needs so that you're freed up to bring your gifts into the world. It's not the way we usually think about it. And, and even people who say, I mean, I've been through this, and even people who say, oh yeah, that's right, I get that, we will still turn around and say, well, they're they're raising more money, so they should get paid more, right? So they're bringing in more money, so they should be paid more. I'm not paying for their labor, but they should be rewarded. I'm saying as soon as you use money as reward for work done, you've commodified the labor. That's hard for people to get their heads around.
0: so you um I mean, obviously, from reading your book, you have a a kind of estimation of the power of gift money mm-hmm. that it is an extremely powerful part of the economy, and you have these three art you say archetypal transactions that um are purchase loan and gift right drawing on the economics course that Rudolf sure, steiner absolutely. gave in 1922 yeah. i mean that was radical at the time so it's each so when you look at each piece of money depending on the psychology it's very different to buy something for yourself than to get sure. it right and that's part of the money right you can't separate them well, you can't
1: separate the money from the quality of relationship.
0: Right. Right. And you really feel like this gift money is a huge, powerful fulcrum for the good. Yeah. Um, why? Whew.
1: I think I'm going to choose two different approaches to that, if you're okay. Um one is that if one takes human development the archetype of human development we all start the world in gift right so we get our physical needs met we have hopefully a very loving and giving parent or parents uh nurturance our physical needs are met by our mothers and um There is a kind of intentionality that flows even at that, you know, is the mother singing and humming? Is the mother annoyed? I mean, all that feeling life is already transmitted in a sense through the gift, because you don't get charged for it, (laughs) you know? Interesting. No, don't want to go there. Um, Through that gift, which is life-giving, which then, you know, even education stays in the realm of gift, because, you know... Um you go the child doesn't pay for the education. It might be provided by the government, might be paid for by the parent, but the child's not paying for that. They're just in the experience of the gift. So you could say the tax the world of taxes is a kind of gift to make that possible. So what happens is one steps into one's individuality, grows, and then you start to have ideas, right? And out of gift you start to have ideas that might be of service to the world which then moves one more into one into the economic sphere but also into like the loan money how does who who do I see that I think could use money well and that then moves into the next phase so it all starts in gift and I think our our being in relation to the economic world starts in gift from that picture so it's all future oriented because you can't nurture in the past it's all like building, building, building. And gift is about the future. It's totally future-oriented. You can't really make a gift to somebody if they've already spent the money. right? You're reimbursing them, maybe, paying them back. So just in our system, it's all about future building. So it's important. If we want to have a future, we better be gifting it. And, you know, if you look at our... So that's thread one, and the other is... Um, I would say, the existing paradigm is, I need to work to generate surplus capital, I'm using up my life, I'm going to produce surplus capital, and if I have more than I need, then I will get to give that away, it's maybe a responsibility, or it's a privilege to give it away, it's somehow they're seen as the end product. And the assumption there is actually transactions, purchases, commodities, loans, and all of the rest that produces surplus capital make that available at the end. And I think that's backwards. Because it assumes that the money is the end, and the human being is sacrificed to produce that. So the gift is the beginning, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Right. And it's a cycle because, um, you know, if you really read through those lectures and you get to the part about the fact that money ages, right? And that's, and dies, that's always one of those places where people say, well, I don't quite get how that happens. Um, but aged money, if it's sitting around, not being used, not being productive in that sense. Um, really gets new life so a lot of gift money is very old old money right i'm sorry don't mean to be (laughs) references, right Um, that money then actually gets to be given away and what happens it's one of those miracle moments
0: it's given. so when you look out at the landscape of let's say the united states right now um, you have obviously a lot of experience know a lot of people in finance Uh, both in the grassroots level, but also, I think, in some of the larger institutions. What do you think, from a strategical priority perspective, is really in front of us when we look at what you call inhabiting interdependence? Mm -hmm. What is really the, the, in your view the right next step.
1: I mean, in some ways, uh, if one takes Picasso's uh, quote of saying, every true act of creation begins with the act of destruction, (laughs) I go, what has to be given up in order to be for the creative to happen? And, um, I think it has a lot to do with sitting with people and saying, what do you really care about? Because they only get to live with the stories they've either learned, helped create themselves, but, um, uh, if they live with a story, I'll never have enough, then they're going to do everything in their power to accumulate and have more, because you never have enough, which means I'll even invent, um... So I have more savings, and I don't want to give it away, so I want to hold on to it, but I don't really can, I, I don't know how to get that money into people's hands, so I'm going to invest in investing, and I'll buy money in the stock market. So you've left the world of real value into virtual value, until you get into derivatives, right? And uh, all sorts of very creative um, inventions, all of them designed to have money make more money, all of which can vaporize in a moment. All under the illusion that I am accumulating more, and it's now working on. It is now working on my behalf. Whether that's true or not, but that's the perception. So the question is, uh, how do we have conversations around how much is enough? Where did the money come from in the first place? How do you think surplus value gets created? Do you really understand that? And that conversation's a delicate conversation. If somebody's actually made their own money, it's different than somebody who's been an inheritor, and is different than, say, a tech entrepreneur who's gotten an enormous amount of wealth from stock value and hasn't done anything, in a way. I mean, can happen very quickly. Uh, So understanding what's produced that wealth, that is actually the result of community activity. That they couldn't have done that without some form of community, because that's where the interdependence is. So it's a hard conversation, but again, it's a matter of checking in on assumptions and then getting people to be willing to take enough time to really explore that. And that starts to change things. Because when you ask the question of how much is enough, um, I mean, I have sat with someone and said, so, enormous wealth. Um, What do you think you need to do? Well, I need to take care of my children. Okay. So, how much do you think is enough to take care of your children? Well, if I, you know, I said, and, okay, so... Let's say you set $5 million aside for each of them into a little trust fund. Hold that for a minute. How much else do you need? And you really start to look at it. People realize, you know, they have so much more than they need. And the question is, how how might you be of service to the world if you really want to have a meaningful life, right? Do you want to just sit here with all this money around you, or is there something else you are longing for? It might be recognition. It might be doing some good in the world. I mean, who knows what that is, but just it takes time to get to a place of feeling like there's enoughness, which is anxiety-driven, to a place of saying, I have enough. What else can I do? And then it's a different conversation. Mm.
0: Thanks for listening to the Project Mohicanatuck podcast. Project Mohicanatuck is an initiative in the Hudson Valley region of New York that is exploring the creation of a holistic regional currency. For more information, visit ProjectMohicanatuck.org. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it and subscribe on iTunes.